You know, uh, I always like to to watch uh, uh, films and incidences where people make a mistake. It makes me feel better and more human, I guess. And uh, I do you remember, for those of you who have been here a while, um, I showed you that film where the guy, the football player, ran the opposite way. Remember that? Well, I got a better one than that for you today. Um, here's a guy. Let me set it up. Uh, two college teams playing. And um, so um, I'm, I'm learning, you know, as I go along, there's different rules for college than there, there are for pros. And uh, so um, uh, in, a, in college ball, uh, when one team punts to the other and uh, the receiving team, if uh, they uh, fumble the ball or they, you know, when they catch the ball, it hits them and deflects and falls to the ground. It's called a muffed punt. And uh, in uh, NFL, you can uh, the opposing team can pick that ball up and run it, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know advance the ball. But in college, a muffed punt when it falls and the other team gets it, and it's just a dead ball right there. The other the opposing team gets the ball, but it uh, it stops. See how much you learn when you come to church. It's amazing, right? So here's a team that's uh, kicking. The, the teams that are wearing the black jerseys are uh, kicking to the team that has the white jerseys just to set up the film. And uh, watch what happens after this. I want you to do the honors on this one. All right, Here's the white team, uh, the white jerseys. There he is. Uh, and now he's running right the wrong now. way. Andre Parker picks it up and decides, I'm going to go, unfortunately, the wrong way. Oh, They're no. going to play it again. There's so many things wrong. First off, you can't advance it on a muff punt. And then he's going the wrong way. And he has teammates blocking for him. And that Towson tried to bring him down. There are so many things wrong about the play. Don't you love that? So let's review. So should have been a dead ball. Uh, he picks it up, should have ended right there. But now he's running. Uh, he's only yards from his own end zone. But he's going to run down the entire field the opposite direction. But not only that, his his fellow teammates are blocking for him to do that. And not only that, think about it. If you're the other team, the guy's in the white jersey, well, he's running toward your end zone. Let him run. No, they're chasing him. They're like trying to tackle him. Like, let him go. Isn't that amazing? So if you take any one of those plays, you'd say, hey, good recovery. Any any part of that play, in and of itself, like that's a, that was a good thing. In fact, it was a good run. I mean, you're running the wrong way, but in and of itself, it's good. Good blocking. Night and way to go. And even the defense, or the, well, the guys in the white jersey, they're running out. Wow, you caught him. That was, you know, in and of itself. But you shouldn't have caught him. You shouldn't have run. You shouldn't have blocked all those things. But if you take them one single thing, single them out, you think, hey, that was, that in and of itself was good. You see, I'm, I'm thinking that on Monday morning, when they did the post-game film, and they're watching, do, do you ever think, what is the coach saying? And, and I'm sure that the coach would say, <clears throat> all right, guys, let's review the tape. Let's review the fundamentals. In college ball, a muffed punt is dead. So there's no reason that you put the energy in. Um, let's review some fundamentals. We have an end zone. The other team has an end zone. You want to run toward ours, right? All these types of things. The only reason that a sports team will review the films is to better themselves for the next game. It's not just for the coach to beat up the players. It's not for them to feel bad or even pat themselves on the back. But they're assessing. They're assessing what is happening in the previous game so that they can better themselves in the next game. You see, I think it's important for us when we come to the end of a year to look at the game film, so to speak, the post-year, the post-game film, so that we can say, okay, here's how it went in 2013. What did we learn? Were we running towards the wrong end zone? Were we running when we didn't need to run? Now, let me just set up right from the beginning that I'm not saying what kind of year did you have relationally. It's important, but that's not where we're getting at. In other words, oh man, I, I fell in love this year. That was wonderful. And my wife and I, woo, got some kindling going on. That was, it was a great year. Or hey, it was not a great year relationally or financially had a great year or not a great year. When I went in the black, went in the red, all, all those things are important, but they're not uh, the focus, we could spend all morning speaking of those. I'm speaking of spiritually. 
How is your spiritual game this year? How is the game that you were called to play? You see, I think it's important for us to realize that post-game is so important for the future game. Now, if, any, if you know anything about the Bible, you'll understand <clears throat> for whatever reason, and there were reasons, that God selected a country, a nation in the Old Testament, Israel. And he selected them. Other countries certainly were invited to come in, but not as much as the New Testament were just broke open and intentionally they went to other places of the world. But God had his eye and his heart on Israel and they built this relationship that was singled out from all other peoples of the world. I think God was showing us what it means to have a relationship that digs down deep. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know it was just like a bad stock, up and down and up and down. And they were on the line, they were off the line. They were with God, they were without God. They were walking with God, they were running from God. And just over and over and over and over. There was a moment we find in the little book of Zechariah that God says, let's do a post game on your forefathers. Let's just look at their film so that you can calibrate and recalibrate and redefine your future by looking at your past. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 4. Post game, God said, do not be like your forefathers. Don't play that game like they played it. They would not listen nor pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? They had a losing season. Verse 6, then the people that were listening to God they changed. They repented. They changed direction. They said, we were going towards this end zone. Now we're going to go to another one. Oh, thank you for pointing out that post game. We're, re we're running a different direction. Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserves, deserve, just as he determined to do. Now, take note carefully. That when you look at the post game, the reason that the guy in the black jersey was not allowed to run to the other end zone is because that ball should have been dead. That was the game's rule. That are college rules. That's not his rule. You can't make it up as you go along. The reason they was running toward the end zone is because there was a right end zone. There's a wrong end zone and he couldn't make it up. So as we look at the post game of 2013 of your life, as you take assessment of how you lived your life with God, let's keep in mind that we're saying, what was God's call? What was God's purpose? Because we're, I'll remind you that we're told in the New Testament in Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We love that part of the verse. We know that part of the verse. But the second half reads this way, who have been called according to his purpose, not ours. See, if you say, hey, how was your year? I'm like, hey, good year. My car's still running. I was, you know, paid my bills. I did this. And oh, no, wait, wait. How about according to God's purpose? How was your year? Someone asked me before the service, hey, man, happy new year. Haven't seen you in a while. How's your life? I'm like, well, which part of it? Because we tend to answer, well, hey, my wife's good, my kid's good. How are our lives according to his purpose, according to his end zones, according to his first down markers, according to his home plates, his home runs, his touchdowns, his scores? In other words, we have to look and assess 2013 by the way that God calls it. That's how I want to assess my life. So today, I'm going to ask you to do something. I don't ask this very often, but today what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose to you three questions, and I'm going to ask that you write them down if you're, if you're so willing. If you're, you're not, that's fine. Don't feel guilty. I'm not, I'm not saying it to make you feel bad. And here's the reason I'm asking you to consider writing them down. If you're like me, by the time I get out to the car, I'm thinking, dude, what was that second question? And these questions, they're designed, I'm designing them so that you can, on your own, when you're home sometime this week, find yourself a solitary place away from the family, away from the kids, and take an inventory by asking yourself 
these questions by doing a post game on 2013 with the sole purpose of saying next year, could I be stronger for Christ? Could I lose more for Christ? Could I be deeper, higher, whatever word you want to put on it? Because if you're sitting here today and saying, yeah, I really don't care. I would say as a, if you're a follower of Christ, you must. That would be a starting place. It's not one of the questions. But if you don't care, if you're like, I, I'm fine the way I am. You man, I, I, I got a busy life, this, that, and the other. And I, I'm just good. See, being a follower of Christ is consistently being molded and sculpted and formed into the image of Christ. It is a lifelong track. And that lifelong track requires us to continually assess, to continually say, where, where am I not aligning with you? Because I want to be more like you. And at the end of my life, like we sang earlier, when we breathe that final breath, I want to align with God's heart. And you do too. And there's a hidden jazz in aligning with God's heart that we'll speak about. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you'll lean forward in your soul and say, gosh, I want to, I want to increase next year my walk with God. I want to strengthen it. I want, I want to do, I want to be uh, even deeper in my, in my, my walk with Him. So we're going to take a look at one of the most, uh, clarified and riveting transitions and post games in the scripture. It's at the end of what we know as the Pentateuch. It's the five books that start the Bible. It's where we get the name. And at the end of the last book, Deuteronomy, in the very last chapter, we get a post game on the life of Moses. Because there's a new kid on the block. His name is Joshua. And Joshua is now going to take over. He's the successor. He's the guy that all of that, has, that Moses has carried as a leader is now going to rest on the shoulders of Joshua. I would propose to you that because of the game that Moses played, Joshua's game was much different. See, had Moses played a different game, had Moses dropped the ball and fumbled and then muffed punts and all that stuff, ran the wrong direction, did his own game, made his own end zone up, made his own first down markers up, made his own rules up, that Joshua, the future, would have been redefined a different way, in a poor way. We look at the end of Moses' life and we do a post game and we begin then in Deuteronomy chapter 34, which is the last chapter of the Pentateuch, the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, in, in the chapter, th in the 34th chapter, we begin in the seventh verse. And I'm gonna use this post game to create, to produce these three questions for you to jot down and for you to spend time asking God. Here comes the first one, Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse seven. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. He was the original juice man, my friends. A hundred and twenty years old. You see, when I'm reading that verse, it produces, it generates the first question that I'd like you to ask God. And the question goes like this. What did you give your strength to in 2013? What did you give your strength to in 2013? Let me remind you that all of us, I don't care who you are, including the juice man, only has a certain level of bars on our, in our energy, in our strength, in our effort. In other words, our passion. And it's easy to say, man, I, I, I'm, I'm passionately doing this, whatever that may be. I, I'm, I'm going to put my energy into this or that or the other. I mean, there are many, many things. I don't want to take the time to name them all. I'll remind you that Christ said, here's the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all of your best strength. Solomon was teaching young men about what to stay away from, about what to, to not spend their strength. Sometimes he said, look, you see, you see the, the person who, who's gotten the habit the, and is addicted to alcohol. Stay away from that. 
Be careful that you don't give your strength to that. There are times that he said, don't be careful that you don't give your strength to an adulteress or to, to a prostitute. And he writes, Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter five and verse eight, he said, keep to a path far from her, a, a prostitute, an adulteress. Do not go even near the door of her house. Watch, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. In other words, it is possible to give your best strength to something, to some, to, to someone. And sometimes as you read this, like, okay, I got that. That's pretty clear. I don't want to give my strength to an, an adulteress. But the principle is that we can spend our best strength even on good things. Work is good. You should work. It's a principle of this country that you work and you earn. That's a good thing. But are you giving your best strength, all of your effort? So at the end of the day, you've only got 1.5 ounces to, to give to God, to give to something meaningful, to give to relationships, all those things while you've given 1400 pounds of effort to something like work. I've said it many times. I know I step on toes when I say this. I love my kids. Thy kids are not God. And it's tempting to make them such. It's tempting to give them my best strength. It's tempting to give for a husband to give his best strength to his wife or a wife his best strength to his, to, to, uh, what did I say? I've lost myself on husbands and wives. A spouse to a spouse. It's possible even in the best things and those are the most subtle things that we give our best strength to and all of a sudden we're spent and the things that we're spent towards we can become slaves. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He took all the family, all of his inheritance. He went out and he, he ran with fools and, and, he, and he, uh, he, he found himself in a, in a different country and we pick it up Luke chapter 15 verse 13. Not long after that, the prodigal younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, his best strength in that chapter of his life, it was his greatest asset. There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Exactly what happens when we expend our best strength toward anything but God. So he went and he hired himself out to be a citizen of that country. And that country sent him to fields to feed pigs. You see, what happens is when we spend our best strength in things other than God and people other than God, what happens is that now we hire ourselves out to that thing and we become enslaved to that thing Make no mistake about it. I have seen fathers enslaved to their children, mothers enslaved to their children, people enslaved to relationships, husbands to wives and wives to husbands, enslaved to work, enslaved to the inbox, enslaved to the to returning texts and emails and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, now they're, we're hired out. We're enslaved to it because we failed to give our best strength. You see, Moses was different. He gave his best strength to God so that when he died, he hadn't lost an ounce because God has a way of replenishing it. You see, investing in God is like a, a bank account. You invest. So many people, when they come up against hard times, they're like, oh, help me, God. Help me, help me, help me. And there's been no investment. God said, oh, don't wait till things are terrible. Make sure that you invest the same amount of energy that you would cry out in a foxhole as you would in following him. A few years ago, I went to the ATM machine. And um, in ATM machines now, you can actually do your deposits of checks at the ATM. I don't know if you know that, but you can, uh, at least some banks, and you put your check in, and uh, it takes it in. You have to type in some things, and then you wait. And then if you have another check, it says ready now, and you put it in, and you know it takes it in. Well, my wife teaches piano. At the time I was teaching piano, so I'd show up with, you know, 18, 20, 23 checks, right? 
And it's supposed to be in and out. You know, when you go to an ATM machine, you don't want to be behind a guy like me. You're in the drive-thru, right? You think, hey, the guy's going to drop a check in. Nope, I got 23. Because it's like you type in the amount, you know, and then you drop the pen, you get it, and blah, blah, blah. You do all that, and you put the check in, and then you wait. And you're waiting for the machine. This is, okay, ready now. You know, and then you do it all again. And, you know, about, and after number 17, the guy behind you is just about to ram you right out of the ATM, you know? So let's say I put in 23 checks. On my last one, it takes it. Nothing. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for, okay, you can put in your next check or are you done? They always ask you. Nothing. I'm like, it's, what? You got my checks. I'm like, I'm getting ready to take a screwdriver or like a sledgehammer. You got my checks in there. They won't come out. And then there was it. Blank. Welcome to Bank of America. I'm like, welcome to Bank of America. Where are my checks? So Monday morning, man, I had to come. Of course, it's a weekend. I come in the office. I'm like, hey, I lost my checks. They're out in that machine. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? I'm like, yeah, open it up. Well, they've already opened. So it took three months to get my money accounted for. I think they said, well, we'll give you $50. Oh, here's more than $50. <laughs> and my, my FPL bill is more than $50 too, so it's going to be a problem here. God is not like a broken ATM machine. See, we invest our best strength, and it's there when we need it. We cannot just show up to a machine that we haven't invested in and expect See, Moses had his strength at the end of his life because he had invested his best strength all year round. In 2013, where have you invested your best strength? What a question to ask. Second question, let me set it up a little bit. In biblical culture, in other words, in the experiences of the Bible, there is a practice we Still do it here at 360. It's the practice of laying on of hands. Now, that seems like a mystery. It seems like for for someone outside the faith, that seems a little bit strange. But God often calls us to do something physical because there is a spiritual dimension that's happening underneath. God, it's not, some people would say it's only the, the New Testament. But no, God used the, the laying on of hands for the purpose, watch, don't miss this, of transferring. God said, look, I'm going to ask you to lay on hands so that something is transferred from one person to the next. Let me give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, the priest would go out and he would take a goat and he would lay his hands on this goat. Now, could this have happened without the laying on of hands? Well, if God had set it up that way, sure. But he asked so that we would see and understand a transference of what was happening. Watch this. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21. The priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, the goat, all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, this, all their sins, every single one of their sins, and put them, their sins, on the goat's head. This is where we get the word scapegoat. So that the priest would take this live goat and by laying his hands on this goat, all of the sins mysteriously and miraculously were transferred onto that goat. And then the priest shall send the goat away outside of the camp into the desert, into the care of a man appointed for the task. And the task was, whoosh, kill the goat. Because all the sins were on there and the goat was executed. You understand the picture. That in Isaiah 53 that we're told that the sins of the world were laid upon Christ, the Son of God. That God literally was putting his hands on his son and the sins of the entire world were miraculously and mysteriously transferred to the Lamb of God. He was then taken outside of the camp, out into the trash dump where the, the task was accomplished and he was executed for the sins of the world. The picture of Christ is nothing new. It's an amazing transference that was happening in that moment. 
Here's another one for you. Often in the Old Testament, at the end of a man's life, like Jacob or Joseph or Abraham, he would gather his children or his grandchildren and he would lay hands and there was not, there was a transference of blessing. For example, in Genesis chapter 48, Israel, the same name for Jacob, reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger, crossing his arms and he put his left hand on Manasseh's head. There was a, a right hand and a left hand and they had significance and different power. But I just want you to see that this laying on of hands was a transference. And the escape goat, it was a transference of sin. Here's a transference of blessing. Watch this. Luke chapter 4. People brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying hands on each one. He healed them. In other words, Christ could have healed without that, but he's transferring his healing power because he's laying hands. Finally, sometimes when people were sent out just a few weeks ago, Rob and Audrey Chestnut, they were, they've been sent out of this church. We brought them up. We laid hands on them. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. God is saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. A transference of empowerment. A transference of healing power. A transference of blessing. A transference of sin of the people on a goat. You see what's happening. So watch this. At the end of Moses' life, look what happens when he's ready to hand off the baton. Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Don't miss the next word. Because. Because. In other words, as a result of Moses had laid his hands on him. So after that, the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Question number two. Are you ready? Here we go. Who have you laid your hands on? In 2013, who have you laid your hands on in 2013? Now, if you say that to the person at work, they may get the wrong idea. Hey, who have you laid your hands on, Bob? No, hey, woo, woo. But you understand because I've set it up what that means. Let me break it down for you. What I mean is what Joshua in your life have you taken your hands and transferred your life to another, a mentorship, a discipleship, a transference. You put whatever word, God doesn't, doesn't, it, it makes no difference what word you put on it. Because God is saying, I have called you. Watch. When God set up the whole universe, He could have done it this way. I often think this way. Boy, He could have done it. I, I've said it before. He could have made everything gray and all the things where you use potatoes. But He made asparagus and kiwi and all the cool stuff, right? But, it, but he, the way He set it up is that one life transfers to the next life, which transfers to the next life. He could have said, you know what? I'm just going to make one oak tree. It's not going to reproduce. It's not going to transfer. And it's in Oklahoma. So in order to see an oak tree, you got to go to Oklahoma. God didn't set it up that way. He transfers life, the transfers life, the transfers life. That's why I said to Adam and Eve, go replenish, multiply, transfer your life and make it bigger. And when we come to the uh, um, Tower of Babel, that's why God was like, ah, oh, man, you're blowing it. You're collecting yourself. Church of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. Oh, man, you're just into yourself. I got to scatter you so you transfer life. Noah could have said, hey, I'm just going to stay on the boat. No, get off the boat and transfer life. Go replenish the earth, multiply. It's all through the scripture. So when Christ is about to leave the earth, he says, go into all the world and transfer. Lay your hands on someone. Make disciples, of course, what he's saying, but transfer your life to the next. Listen, no offense, but I'm stunned. I'm stunned. I'm stunned that of all things that we as Christians somehow have deemed this as optional. Optional. The very thing Christ said is, go lay your hands on an individual, like Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Paul and Timothy, and transfer your life 
to someone else. Go and make disciples. Oh man, I'm like, I'm going to church. I, um, uh, I'm reading my Bible once in a while. I'm praying a little bit and I'm, I'm good. I, I think that's just good. And somehow when we come to the area that God calls us that we see in Moses' life, we say, that's, that's kind of optional. I'm not sure I really want to participate in that. And God said, I never made it optional for anyone. Now, Christmas Eve, I shared with you um, that my neighbors have these beautiful Christmas decorations, right? And, uh, I, you know, I, I walk out, man, I, this guy, he put, puts, his, he puts, uh, you know, we got the, he's got this holly tree that's like a big, uh, spiraling, uh, work of art. It's really cool. And he puts, so last night I went out and I took a picture of it because I wanted to show you. And the picture doesn't do its justice because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's at night and everything and, and the wind was blowing so you don't get to see all the lights. But this is when I walk out of my, uh, door at night and go to my mailbox, this is what I get to enjoy. My neighbor, his name is Terry. I'm like, thanks, Terry. That's awesome. I, I love that. That tree spirals way above his house. So again, it's kind of hard to capture. Now, when Terry walks out of his house and he looks at my house, this is what my house looks like. There we go. Yeah, I got two garage lights. One of them's burned out. And I got to be honest with you, it's been burned out for quite a while. I got to get out there, you know, and get that light bulb out. I mean, it's so tough. What is wrong with me? The light bulb's burned out. I think it's been burned out since Easter. So, you know, um, in a magazine, you, you, you know that sometimes they'll take, like if they're doing show homes, and they'll, like, to title the, like, River Residential. You know, they'll put titles to it. So I was thinking about my neighbor's house, and I was like, if I were to, in a magazine, I'd say, Spiraling Beauty. That's what I would call it, you know? And then I'm thinking, you know, and if I had a picture of my house in a, in a magazine, it'd be like Christmas Moron. You know what I'm talking about? The guy can't even fix a light. What's wrong with it? It's an idiot. So... I shared with you, uh, this past week that, um, I found some Christmas decorations. You remember Christmas Eve and that you can kind of minimize the effort and, uh, but it still looks decent. Dude, since Christmas, I found another one. And I'm telling you, man, this is, if you want to know, I hate putting up Christmas decorations. I love looking at them, but you know, it's always my job to put up Christmas tree lights and the back side of the tree doesn't look good as the front side. Just cause I'm like, I'm not into it. So I'm like, Hey, looking good, honey. Thanks a lot. And I come around the back of the tree. I just whip it around right to the front. So it's more of a zigzag rather than, you know, you know what I'm getting at. So I saw this and I thought, man, this is me right here. I love this. Yippers. I'm digging that. Yeah. That's what I would, that, that's exactly what I'd hang right there. Close enough. Now, as crazy as that is, honestly, think, think with me. My fear is that we would look back at 2013. And when we ask ourselves the question, who have I laid my hands on? Who have I transferred life? I'm like, oh, close enough. I really haven't. I read my Bible. Good grief. What else do you want? I give an offering. I come to church. I'm pretty consistent. But I'm not into that. But it's close enough. And I think on behalf of God, I would say honestly with you, who says so? You see, God would say, look, I've called you to this. Well, I run to the other end zone. It seems open. The coach is going, who's that so? You can't run that play. You can't do that. You can't make it up as you go along. You see, I look in this room, literally. I see 50, 75, maybe 100 treasures of life that God has poured into. The experience, the walk, the, the, the bank account of things that people know. And you think, oh, I'm not a Bible expert. Neither am I. Come on. That you could transfer, that you could lay your hands on one individual. And you could transfer life to life and it would change the world. This is not chicken dinners, folks. This is life transferring to life. The very thing that God called us to. Now watch, put your seatbelt on. If you thought that was rough, watch this. God is omniscient. What that means is that he's aware. He is knowledgeable about every 
inch of everything. That means past, present, and future. He knows it all, everything. He knows actual before it happens. He knows actual even though it has already happened. All right? We know that. Here's the mind-blowing thing. God doesn't only know every inch of actual. He knows potential. He knows what could be. He knows, hmm, heartbreaking, what could have been. Do you remember when Christ, he said, gosh, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have had the same info that you guys got, they would have repented. He could see what people would have done. He could see how the church would have been. He could see where we would have been. He could see your life where it could be. Some people say, yeah, I've been burned by the church. Yeah, whatever. I could write a book and the title would be whatever. We all get burned. We all get fried. We all get hurt. We all get stepped on. We all get railroaded. We all get thrashed. We all get, uh, hey, I think I'll just start writing it right now. I mean, you know, it's, it's, we all have that. We can no longer use the past as an excuse for not moving in the future because God sees the potential of what could be. Think about Abraham, an old man who was called to take his only son Isaac and offer him to God. Think about after a three-day journey on a mule uh, carrying an old man that as he got to the foot of the mountain, he could have said, Honestly, man, that's close enough. That's good enough, man. I'm God, I'm I'm tired. No, I want you to climb the mountain. I, I want you to take this journey and climb after he got to the top of the mountain, an older man, an, a very old man, after a three day mule journey, it wasn't Amtrak, and he could climb this mountain with a chunk of wood on his back. That when he got at the top, he said, okay, now I'm good. Now I'm, this is close enough. How many of us are willing to lay down our Isaac so that we don't settle for close enough anymore? When you score a football uh, um, touchdown, it's only if the tip of the ball is just a centimeter. Close enough doesn't score. Running a great play, even though it's the wrong direction, doesn't score. God would say, look, I want to remind you of something through Moses' life. I'll remind you that Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. I came to Christ May 2nd, 1982. There was a man from India who and very disorganized in the way we approached it. But he met with me once a week for an entire year. Every week I'd show up. I'd have the the fundamental questions. Dude, I don't I don't even know how to pray. His name was C. M. Titus. And tight we called him Titus. I said, Titus, man, I, I, I don't know if all my sins are forgiven. Okay, let's dig down on that. I will tell you That after meeting with that man, he laid his hands on me. He transferred his invested life into an empty bank account. And Steve McCoy is standing here for one reason. Because, because, because there was a man from Kerala, India, who laid his hands on me and transferred his life to get my feet on solid ground. This is not an option for us. It is a responsibility. I hope I've said it passionately enough for you. Finally, I'm reminded by the life of Moses of something very critical. And it's FaceTime with God. We are a culture of abbreviation, are we not? We are a minimalistic culture. We don't write letters any longer. We type a quick text. We don't pick up the phone. We shoot an email. The quicker, the better. There are certain things in life that that doesn't work real well. Farming would be a good idea. Could be a picture for you. It takes time. You can't throw a corn kernel into the ground 
and expect to be chewing on some corn on the cob next Thursday. Our relationship with God is equal to that concept. Our face time with God. Our tendency in this culture is to fast pace it. Oh, I talk to God all the time. Great. I think we ought to pray without ceasing. Jesus could have said the same thing. Dude, I'm busy. And I am the son of God. And we have this kind of cool connection if you didn't know it. And I'm speaking to him all the time. However, we're reminded in the, in the fifth chapter of Luke, in verse 16, that Jesus often, frequently, consistently withdrew from the emails, from the computer, from the work, from the family, from his closest friends. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he probably prayed when it was convenient. I doubt it. Very early in the morning, probably 4 o'clock, while it was still O dark hundred, when it took some effort, when he lost sleep, Jesus got up, he left the comfort of the house, and he went off to a solitary place away from everyone away from everything where he prayed. You remember Jesus uh, had uh, exhibited amazing power. One time he cast out a demon from someone. And someone said, how does this happen in Mark nine twenty nine, He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. And some translations say, and fasting. Now listen, let me speak to our leaders first. It is easy and subtle, insidious to operate in the things that you do well. Play music, preach, strategize, crunch numbers, teach, disciple for some of you. Whatever that thing is, it is subtly easy for us to operate in a way that is in our own effort without God. I know it. I have done this for over three decades. I can get up and give a speech. It doesn't make me nervous. I don't have dry mouth. I don't lay awake the night before. I usually am laying awake the night before excitement. To, I do it uh, easily. I could get up here and do it, humanly speaking, on my own. God allows it. Spiritually speaking, it's going to go bankrupt. It's going to crash. It's going to toast. But I can still do it. I remind the leaders of our church that as tempting and as subtle as it is, we must remind ourselves that we cannot effectively do anything, anything for God's kingdom without FaceTime. And I mean FaceTime with God. I'm not catching them on the cuff. I'm not counting the worship song I heard on the radio as that time. I'm saying carve out solitary time where you get up early if it has to be and carve away everything else. And I and God are having FaceTime. Watch. At the end of his life, Moses 34.10 in Deuteronomy. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel. You see, Moses' day one wasn't great. It was a failure. He rose. He increased. He grew. No one, no prophet had risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord had sent them to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all those officials and to the whole land. See, God was spiritually making him effective because he had face time. Here's a third question for you. How would you describe your face time with God in 2013? How would you describe your face time with God in 2013. Let me tell you what I'm 
not speaking about. Because this area gets nice and fuzzy. I'm not speaking about an eight-minute devotional. I'm not. I want you to imagine that your spouse, if you said, hey, how's your marriage? Awesome, man. I spent eight, day, eight minutes a day with my wife. It's great. She's going to say, no, it ain't. It takes time. This is something that is challenging for your pastor. And I work. I, it does, it's not like I just wake up. I'm like, hey, you know what? I think I'll carve out an hour and a half and spend with God. I have to wake up earlier. I have to lose something. That email box is calling my name every morning. I've told you that. I got phone calls to return. I got tasks. I got just like you guys, right? I want to say that to you so you don't think I'm some holy man up here that's just got it all together. And, you know, I eat just bread and water and live in prayer all day long. I only do that six days a week. Now, the other day, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're human. Christ said when he's told the disciples to pray, I know your spirit is willing. Most of you are sitting here like, yeah, I know that. But your flesh is weak. Your flesh wants to check the email. Your flesh wants to get right to work. Your flesh will tell you that you are operating just fine in the things that you do well. And God said, not on your life. Don't allow your future to be rested on a lazy past. Finally, at the end of this story, we get this one last verse. Deuteronomy 34, 12. No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I wonder if God, I wonder if other people would say that. Man, I got to tell you, I can tell where that guy puts his best strength. I can tell, man, that guy, he's a transfer. Boy, he, he really is not just a walking buffet, but he pours it out. Boy, I can tell, like Moses, they could tell, that guy spent some time with God. I told you on Christmas Eve, our youngest was extraordinarily sick. He, had, he just had extreme everything with a stomach flu, just pale as a sheet, Plus his little heart on Christmas morning, you know, he's just kind of laying sideways on the floor and we just kind of scoot a gift near him like a puppy, you know. <laughs> and he was just like laying on the floor. Oh, thank you guys so much. You know, just I went to my mom's house. I didn't want her to miss out. So I brought my laptop down and Carrie had her laptop and we Skyped mom in because I didn't want her to catch what he had. So we had our first Skype Christmas. Welcome to technology. Actually worked pretty good. He's been sick all week, and now he's, he's, he's on the mend. He's, he's gotten a lot better and all that jazz. Yesterday I was working, and uh, his name is Wes. Wes is a whistler. I guess that makes my wife Whistler's mother. Sorry, that's a bad joke. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm here all week. Matinee's on Wednesday. Um, and so in the back of the room, it doesn't matter what he's doing. He could be cleaning the bathroom as a chore. He could be doing homework. <whistles> doing homework. I mean, how does a person do math homework? I'm, I check. He's like, he's actually doing it. <whistles> Just whistling all the time. I keep trying to pick up the tune. I think it's like John Lennon's song played backwards. Remember that? <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just think it's random. But he's just a happy kid, generally. <whistles> and yesterday I'm working in my office. And it, out of the back, I heard something, but it reminded me that this past week, something was missing. Now, he whistles to the point that it just bothers his older brother to death. I think that's why he whistles a lot, by the way, because <laughs> his older brother cannot whistle. That's part of the deal. And even for me, after a few hours, I'm like, can we cool the whistling? Just a shade here. Yesterday, I realized there had been something missing. Because out of, the, out of this week, man, there had been zero whistling. He's been sick. He's been off. He's had a malady. So yesterday, I'm sitting in my office. I'd forgotten completely about it. just went completely past me. 
I'm sitting in my office and I hear this from the back. I'm like, there it is. There, I have forgotten. It had gotten past me. He hasn't whistled all week. Thank you, Jesus. No, just kidding. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I missed the whistle. Do you know why I'm so passionate in this moment? Do you know why I think God would say, hey, look, make sure you are, you are asking yourself these questions. Because honestly, if you go through life and, and you're spending no, your face time is anemic and, and, you're not transferring your life to anybody and you're spending your best strength insidiously. God will look at you and say, I cannot hear your soul whistle. I don't hear the jazz. And we even in ourselves, because we're operating all the time and the clutter of the game and the excitement of, oh, there's a bouncing ball and we're running as fast as we can and we think we're running the right direction and we got people blocking for us and the other team is chasing us because of the clutter of the whole game. And all the time we have missed the whistle of our soul. And God said, oh, I miss hearing it. From you. That's why God pushes us. Because he loves to hear your soul whistle. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for pushing us, for passionately pushing us. Thank you, God, for for loving our souls. Thank you, God, for loving jazz, the whistle of our soul, that upbeat sense of when we're in rhythm with you, God. So, Father, for 2014, I pray that we will evaluate, that we'll assess, and that we'll find ourselves in a prayer closet asking you these questions, and we allow you, God, to answer them honestly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.